chapter 9. Isaiah 9, we're going to be four weeks in the book of Isaiah, looking at some of the most traditional uh, Advent and Christmas passages um, that you may know very well, and um, just taking a deeper look at those. We're going to be starting in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7 today, which has the famous verses 6 and 7, for unto us a child is born, a son is given, which we all might know from Handel's Messiah. And um, it would be very easy for us to, to dive right into those verses and just talk about how Jesus is those things. He is the wonderful counselor. He is mighty God, uh, everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And we, it, we're singing it in our heads, and we know that this is about Jesus, and so it is. It is about Christ. Um, but one of my jobs, I feel like, is to help us understand the Scriptures themselves, to help us be able to read the Bible for ourselves, to understand what it's actually saying. And so it's not a bad thing that we automatically see these words and we think because of Handel and, and other, you know, maybe being in church for a while, if, if that's your story, that um, this is about Christ. But I think that Maybe even well-meaning Christians, maybe many of us in the pews this morning have asked ourselves before, how do we know that this is about Jesus? How do we know that Isaiah, when he was prophesying, was thinking about this, or was he thinking about it? And if so, why didn't he say this is about Jesus and uh, and, and just make it very clear for us? And I think sometimes we kind of have a view of the Scriptures, and especially of prophetical books, which is what Isaiah is, is that uh, they're kind of a code. You know, if you, if you can crack the code, then you can find out where Christ is hiding and then see that, you know, this kind of fulfillment happened. And I think sometimes we have a mistaken view of what the authors themselves are doing in the Scriptures. And I think well-meaning Christians wonder, is this what a Isaiah had in mind when he says, wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, unto us a son is giving? Is he talking about Jesus? One of the things that we need to understand about the Scriptures, and especially the prophets, is that the, the Bible allows for multiple fulfillments of, of different prophecies. And way to understand this is that the Bible is one unfolding story. I want to just, before we even read the passage, I want to give you a couple of images that may help when, you under, when you're reading the Scriptures and you're going from left to right and from the beginning of the story to the end of the story. When the Bible unfolds, it's, it's like a sunrise. That's the first image. Imagine the sun coming up over the horizon, and as, as it does, there is greater and greater light. At first, everything is in darkness, and then you start to see shapes and forms and shadows and the outlines of things. And then as the sun rises, you see more and more. That's actually the way the scriptures work. From the beginning, we're told clear things about God. There's light from the God who brought the world together. But then over time, He gives us greater and greater light. The sun rises on us. And as we come to Christ, we see that with the greatest fulfillment, uh, His plan and His story. And guess what? The story isn't over yet. This, this story will end with the brightest sun overhead, meaning the world will be seen as it is and will be known what the truth is. 
And so we're not even at the zenith of that sunrise yet. We have a place in the story of God. It's like a sunrise, but it's also like a canvas that's been painted on. There are pictures, if we think about the Old Testament, the beginning of the story where God paints a picture of redemption, and then Christ comes and a new picture is painted over the old and actually incorporates the old so that it's the same picture, it's the same canvas that God has been working on, but we see more, we see greater, and more connections are made. All that to say... When we come to a book like Isaiah and we read him prophesying, he's speaking to a specific uh, event that is going on in the life of Judah, where he is a prophet. And it's okay to see what's going on. In fact, it's helpful to see what's going on and then to see, but with that greater light, with that rise of the sun, with the new pictures that have been painted over the old canvas, how do we have much greater light, much greater detail about who God has sent for our redemption? That is Christ. Let's read these seven verses together, starting in verse 1. But there will be no gloom. For her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. So a bit of a confession to make. Uh, We decorate for Christmas very early, Uh, especially this year. It was about, um, I think, nine days before Thanksgiving, okay? That's a bit of a confession. I know that's wrong. I, I like to say so far it hasn't made me less thankful. We still celebrate Thanksgiving and, um, but we are, we are early Christmas people. One year, for instance, I bought a Christmas tree, a live Christmas tree, off the truck as it came into the Lowe's parking lot. That's, that's how committed uh, we can be about Christmas. We just love it. Every year we, we buy more decor, and uh, it's kind of a ritual. We buy something new, we put it into place, and um, you know we have these days where we, where we decorate. And... Um, so about so last weekend, uh, early in the weekend, we were decorating, and we brought all the boxes out and all the stuff, 
and, um, and it's just chaos. You know, we have all this stuff everywhere, inside stuff, outside stuff, stuff's not working, stuff needs batteries, all kinds of things are happening. And there's that moment when you, as a parent of young children, where you realize, okay, we've made a huge mistake by bringing all this stuff out at one time. Because it's not, like, how is it going to, how is this going to get cleaned up? Um, you know, how is it, it's going to take us all day. And so you work on it, and kids place things in weird spots you know, all over the house, and you're like, no, that doesn't go there, and you're trying to fix all this stuff. But then, in the fullness of time, all the chaos turns into Christmas cheer. I mean, that's just what happens. Like, all the boxes, they get put away, and then there's a glow about the house, and then there is just a joy and a cheer that comes out of that chaos, even though you're not sure exactly how it's going to get there. Isaiah, this prophet, writes in a chaotic time in Israel's history. There is so much going on. There are alliances. There are threats. The biggest threat is the nation of Assyria that is gaining power. And he is, in this passage, looking forward to a time of hope when the chaos will somehow be sorted and will turn into a kind of cheer because there is going to be Emmanuel. These few chapters of the book of Isaiah talk about, uh, they're often called the book of Emmanuel, the book of God with us, the child who is born. He's looking forward to the time when all the chaos gets sorted out. Similarly to our lives, when we think about like what's the, the chaos that is going on right now for me, the things I don't understand, the things that, that need to be put right, how do I understand what kind of things I put my hope in during times when they feel like they are chaotic? Isaiah is looking to a time of peace from his personal chaos of Assyria threatening, but he's also looking much further than that. And you can't read this passage without understanding how far of a lens he actually has on. I want us to look at two things. He first gives us the hope, and then he gives us the surprise. The hope first. The hope that he lays before us is in four parts. He says there's these things that are going to happen that should give us hope. The land is ready, the light has come, the harvest is full, and the war is over. Those are the four things that he tells us. First, he says the land is ready. Look with me at verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. By, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. What is this gloom that he's talking about? There will be no gloom. He's looking forward to a time when there won't be this chaos. Where's all this anguish coming from? It's coming from the rise of Assyria. This is what Isaiah is dealing with. Just a 
quick history lesson, which I know what you came for uh, this morning. So at this time in Israel's history, there are actually two nations. There's the northern kingdom of Israel, and there's the southern kingdom of Judah. If you know the story, then Israel had a united monarchy. They, the glory days were King Saul, King David, King Solomon, just succession after succession, these glory days. And then Solomon had two sons that bickered, and the nation split apart into the north and the south, the southern kingdom of Judah. And God was with Judah. The, the northern kingdom never had a good king. They, they always were walking further and further from uh, the very start. Jeroboam was their king, and he set the standard for evil, and he, he walked away from the Lord, and they participated in idolatry. The southern kingdom fared just a little bit better. They had some good kings. They had God's faithfulness. They listened to the prophets at times. But ultimately, both of these nations, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, are judged by God into exile, with the north being falling to Assyria and the south falling to Babylon. Eventually, God brings his people back from Babylon and reestablishes Judah, though much weaker. The northern kingdom absolves into nothingness. There is no more northern Israel after they fall. And the threat right now is Assyria, both to the north and the south. This is what's happening. Uh, if you're into geopolitics, I guess this is going to interest you, right? So there's a threat from Assyria to both nations. And the northern kingdom, they form an alliance, not with the southern kingdom of Judah, but with another nation called Syria. Not Assyria, but just Syria. So the north and Syria, they join together and they want the southern kingdom to join with them against Assyria. But the southern kingdom does not. And so the Syrians and the northern kingdom go to war, not just with Assyria, but with the southern kingdom of Judah, which is where Isaiah is prophesying right near the end of this nation. Northern Israel is judged by God, first by a guy named Tiglath-Pileser, who attacks and carries off people, and then it's finished up by a guy named Shalmaneser, who then takes all of Israel to Assyria, and Israel is done. Why am I, why am I giving you this history lesson? Well, you need to understand that this is the area of the country that, we, that Isaiah is talking about. He's saying there's contempt for the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. That is the northern tribes, two of the northern tribes. They're in, they're in this, this land of the Gentiles in northern kingdom. And he says there's been contempt for them, but they will be redeemed. This land, this land which is even here called Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles. See, in the northern part of Israel, it's close to another couple of countries called Tyre and Sidon. And so even in these days, even in Isaiah's days, there's been more Gentile presence coming in to this land, this northern Israel. And he says, this will be redeemed, this Galilee of the nations. I wonder how. How will the Gentiles then come in and be redeemed, we might ask. The land is ready. The light has come. 
Look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has the light shone. Light is a powerful metaphor in the Scriptures for many things. It implies sight and, and insight and also morality, which is, I think, what's in view here. In the same place, in this land of Zebulun and Naphtali in the north, there has been darkness. But now the light has come to the Galilee of the nations. Just to get ahead of ourselves for a moment, Matthew chapter 4 also quotes this passage and says that the one who lives in Capernaum, Jesus of Nazareth, after he has been baptized, that's where his ministry begins. And as he goes in this land between the Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea, he brings this light. And he says it is in fulfillment of verse 2. The land is ready. The light has come. The harvest is full. Look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Isaiah here is looking forward to a time of prosperity for the people of God. Not where nations come and take Israel, but they have such overflowing prosperity that they then are the resource for the world. They have their pick of the harvest. He says, lastly, the war is over. Verse 4 and 5, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Isaiah looks forward to a time where he hopes that God will defeat all of Israel's enemies. He says, like you did at Midian. Like that. What is that? What is the, the like Midian here that God is going to do? It's actually one of the coolest uh, stories in the Bible, if you haven't read it, Judges chapter 7, where God defeats Midian. He uses the judge Gideon was a leader in Israel, and he appoints him to defeat the Midianites and the Amalekites who have formed an alliance in their day. And God, God does an amazing thing. He pairs down their army of 32,000 men to 300 men through a series of bizarre tests. And then these 300 men come to these great hosts of the Midianites, and they defeat them with, wait for it, Trumpets, jars of clay, and torches. The point is, and the story goes, they, they create this confusion and the army ends up fighting itself and God wins the day. The point is this. God didn't want Israel to take credit for this victory. He, he delivers such an amazing victory that there's no way that it could have been done any other way except that God did it. And that's why he pared down the army. And so Isaiah is looking forward to the time where it's just like, we're just going to watch what God does. 
when he defeats all the enemies. He's going to so soundly defeat Assyria and anyone else who rises up against us. And every boot, every garment, every equipment for war will be burned. There's no more use for it. That is Isaiah's hope for the future, that this land will be ready. This light will finally come. This harvest will be full and all the war will be over. That is his hope. And as he names out these hopes, then we are prepared for the surprise in verse 6, which feels, even as you read it in context, like an anticlimax, like a surprise, like a, like a record spinning. You know, like, what? This is the answer? This is the answer to my hopes. Verse 6, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All of these hopes, he says, will come about through a child. A child will make the land ready. A child will bring light to the darkness. A child will make the harvest full. A child will end every battle. Do you see the surprise? The hope of the world is a child. Even as we read it, it's somewhat shocking, even if we know the story. But the surprise should not really be a surprise if we're looking at it through the lens of the story as we see the greater light, as we see the new picture put on the canvas, we will see that this child makes sense. If we're looking at this through the lens of Genesis chapter 3, the hope of the world has always been a child. What is the promise? The promise is the seed, the son. There will be enmity, God says to Satan and the woman, between your seed and your seed, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, the child that comes will crush the head of the oppressor. It's there from the very beginning. It gets repeated throughout the whole story. Like in 2 Samuel 7, when God gives a covenant to David, the king, he says, I will be the father to this son, this promised son, your line, David. He shall be my son. Like the Messianic Psalms, like Psalm 2, which says, You are my son. This day I have begotten you. Throughout the story, there are these hints. That's just two. We could go on and on throughout the story that the hope has always been the seed, the son, the child. Who is this child? Who is the child that brings hope? Well, let's just read it in context and make some guesses as we look at what Isaiah may be talking about. Perhaps he's talking about Hezekiah. He was one of the last kings of Judah. A good king. A promised king. Son of Ahaz. One who does a lot of good and is probably born around this time. Maybe is already born. Probably already born when Isaiah writes this. And Isaiah could be thinking this hope will come through this child. It's chaos right now, but maybe this child who's born to us 
will be the good king that Israel needs. And that is in fact true. There is a short amount of time where peace comes to the land of Judah after Israel has been taken away. And Hezekiah reigns, and it's okay for a while before they are taking off to Babylon. Maybe it's Hezekiah. Maybe it's Isaiah's own son, some commentators believe. Isaiah's son, whose name is Maher Shalal Hashbaz. So if you're looking for a hipster name for your kid that hasn't been taken yet, I haven't met any Maher Shalal Hashbazes yet, but I'm sure it'll be sweeping the nation anytime soon. It means hurry to the spoils, hurry to the, to the harvest, to the, what is talked about in verse 3. Maybe Isaiah, as he says, they'll enjoy the harvest and they'll be glad when they divide the spoil that maybe Isaiah himself sees his own son as having a better hope and a better future that God will lead this nation. All of those things are fine to think about because Isaiah was a person and he was writing. However, if the immediate fulfillment of this passage is all in a person in the land of Judah right now, it's a pretty big letdown. Do these hopes come true? Through Hezekiah, through Isaiah's son, was the way of the sea made glorious? Was the north redeemed? Israel is about to be gone. Did Israel or Judah or any combination of the two become more prosperous? Did their nation thrive after these exiles? Not, not economically, not numerically. What about the temple in which there's so much hope in the, the prophets as they put their hope in God's presence among them, God with us in the temple in real time and with architecture and stone? It never happened. It never was glorious. The time of David, Saul, and Solomon was the most glorious that the physical temple ever got. There was a second temple, but even at its laying of foundations, you read in the book of Ezra, there is crying because they can already see with the plans laid out before them that it'll never be enough. It'll never be like it was with Solomon. And there is weeping even while they rejoice, even as they pick themselves up from their return from Babylon. And now, the second temple, that second one that was even, they were crying over at the time, doesn't stand. There's one wall, the wailing wall. There's a few steps in Jerusalem where you can go and even touch the places where Jesus might have walked. That's all that stands there now. It was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D. If this refers exclusively to someone other than the son who comes to Mary and Joseph, then either they are too weak or the promises are too great. But what if the Galilee of the nations, this little section of northern Israel, wasn't just a small picture 
of the nations, Tyre and Sidon, coming into Israel, but was indeed the whole earth, that is, all nations, tribes, and tongues coming in to the people of God. And what if the light shining in the darkness wasn't just a temporary illumination where they saw how they could find their way out of this crazy political situation they were in, but was in fact the light of the world? Come to end all darkness, to bring light and insight and morality to all the earth. And what if the great harvest was not just Israel becoming a mightier nation and being able to give and people coming into Israel rather than them being taken away, but was actually the fields of all the earth made white for the harvest? What if the yoke And the burden of the oppressor and the tumult of war wasn't just Assyria, though it was, and wasn't just the Medes or Persians or any other mighty power, whatever was the power de jour, but was in fact the great spiritual powers at work in this present darkness the enemies of our faith, Satan, sin, and death, chief among them. All who will be, we're told in the Scriptures, destroyed in battle. The tumult will end. The war will be over. All of these promises do come through a child. The child is Christ. He is the son of David. David's son, yet David's Lord. As Christ is born, it is with these promises looming in the air as Matthew, Mark, and Luke grab sections of Isaiah saying, this is what's happening. It's happening right here. This is how he's redeeming the nations. This is how he's healing the Gentile people as he goes close to the border of Tyre and Sidon, and he makes way, the, the way glorious to the sea. This is the Christ who is overshadowed by God Himself, Father and Spirit, at His baptism, and has said, You are my beloved Son. The hope of the world has always been a child. And if you receive the child, you receive light for your darkness. You will inherit the harvest, and you will be victorious in battle, no matter what the chaos is. Who is this child, this Christ? He has a name and he has a throne. He has a name. Look with me at verse 6. A name that has five characteristics. Not four, as is common, but five. Handel had it right in the Messiah. His name shall be called Wonderful. Stop. It's a noun. Wonderful. The wonder. Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He is the wonder, meaning excellence, a treasure, a delight, a thing to be seen as great. Counselor, speaking of His wisdom for all those who are in need of direction. Mighty God, speaking of His strength. He is the everlasting Father, or maybe the Father of the age, we could say. 
Don't get thrown off here. How is Jesus called the Father here? This is in the sense that C.S. Lewis is the father of allegorical, allegorical stories. He is the father over a certain region. And he says he is the father of eternity. He's the figurehead or the author, we might say, of eternity. Meaning he is eternal. He is not for the moment. He is forever. He is the prince of peace. Calm. Blessedness. Shalom. Wholeness. All the things that the son of David should be, he is. And through that, he becomes the hope of the world. He has a name. And secondly, he has a throne. Look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Jesus is called the Son of David. You remember in Luke chapter 1, where Gabriel says to the Virgin Mary, He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. This Son of David, that the New Testament authors take great pains to help us see where he came from, is the promised Son, and he has a promised throne. What are we to do with this news? As we trust in the child, the hope of the world is the child. We trust in his name and we bow to his throne. As Philippians chapter 2 says, his name is above all names. So at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. There they are together, Jesus the Lord, the name and the throne. And so what it means is, is that we are to take all of our hopes, all of our dreams, all the things that we think will make the world a better place and put those hopes into a child. Like Isaiah pictures for us, the things that we hope in and hope for have not changed at all. These are still the things that we long for. Take just a minute to honestly answer this question. What do you genu- genuinely hope will happen in your life? What do you genuinely think will be the answer? What is your hope? Is it in a different situation than you're in right now? Is it in a different job or a different economic status? Is it in the hope of having closer friends or in moving closer to home or whatever it may be. You kind of set your sight on some vision of the future in the midst of chaos. Exactly what Isaiah is doing. He's looking around and he's seeing Assyria and he's seeing all these things, these threats, and he's wondering how is this going to work out and he extends his hope to the future. And he can imagine certain things being true. The world being at peace. He can imagine the world being at peace. He can imagine, you know, plentifulness. That I would have more abundance, like a harvest. That my people wouldn't be so lost. I think all of us can look to the future and see some future version. The question is, do you stake that belief in the child? 
this child who unto us is born, this son who is given. As we enter into the story of Advent, we know that this child is the hope of the world, and we have the benefit being between his two comings to know how some more of the story has unfolded because this child becomes a faithful boy who becomes a student, who becomes a rabbi, who becomes a healer, who becomes a sacrifice, who becomes a resurrected king, who becomes one who sits at the right hand of God, ascended on high, who will come again. This child starts as a child, though, and as we enter into the story, we come to him for our hopes and our dreams. Whatever future version of hope that you have, it must involve him or it's a false hope. It must be greater intimacy with him, greater recognition of his name, coming to him for counsel, coming to him for light, coming to him, the eternal one, but also bowing to his throne, knowing that he is the king, that his purposes are above yours. When you have that submission, you come in, then you are living into the story. I read somewhere that um, Johann Sebastian Bach wrote on the top of, of every page of music that he wrote. At the top was the phrase, Jesu Juva. And at the bottom were three initials, SDG. Jesu Juva means, Jesus help me. SDG stands for Soli Deo Gloria, all for the glory of God alone. And it's like he's saying in a signal, with all of my life, with with every bit of me, with what I create, with what I contribute to the world, you can almost read it as with his whole life, his contribution. He lived between Jesus help me and God be the glory. Whatever I do, whatever I create, I need the help of Jesus from the beginning. And whatever I have created, whatever ends or purposes it serves, it means that God gets the glory. That's where we live. We live between Jesus help me and to God be the glory. And we see that our lives are to be submitted to him, to the child. What do you need? You need all the things that Christ gives. Jesus help me, wonderful counselor, wonderful. I need this wonder in my life. I need this counselor. I need strength, the mighty God. I need his eternality for my temporality, my temporariness, my being made of dust is satisfied in him who was before all time and continues forever. The Prince of Peace, the thing that we maybe feel the most when we are in a season of chaos and we wonder how God is going to shape it, what kind of hope we should have for his Solving the problem. Come to the Prince of Peace. Jesus, help me. But then give him the glory. He is not just the name. He is the King. He sits on the throne. And so it's like everything gets put into this one place. As we sang earlier in the song, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Everything comes to this. The hope of the world is a child. Let's pray.